to OKHR Leads, hosted by Tara Crowley and Rob Trotter. We are connecting with leaders in our community and hearing their story and what makes them tick. Hi, Rob. Tara, how are you doing? It is Friday after the conference that you co-chaired. So um, I'm looking at you. You look you look well rested, but how are you doing? I am energized, revitalized, mm-hmm. so excited of takeaways from the conference and bottom line, so, so, so pleased that we got to connect with so many people. It was great. It was great. I, I got I got to say, I was, I, I expected this, but still surprised by how energizing and just refreshing it was to be amongst people. Amongst our, amongst our HR peers, that was that was to me the highlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, I, I I left with like 20 pages or plus of notes from Simon T. Bailey and you know these little nuggets that you get like take your meds. And, uh, Rena Cook, who taught me to ground myself so I could speak better. Ooh. And then, uh, Sandy Ash, you know, talking about roar and resilience. Johnny, Johnny. Johnny. From Sherm, you know, expectations on HR. Johnny C. Taylor. Johnny C. Taylor. Um, oh, and then and then on. I heard from some of our past guests, David McLaughlin and and Kyle Killingsworth, and some of our and, and uh, Linda Clark was fantastic on purpose. And <laughs> some of our future future guests like Monica Scott talking about the sound of culture. So um, I am just I am jazzed. I am I am refreshed. I am excited and. Happy, happy, happy that I went. You didn't go. Fooey on you. Go to next year's. It's going to be great. Absolutely. And if you did go and you didn't get to hear so many people, remember to get back on the Whova app because all of these uh, presentations will be available in the near future, but they all still have to be loaded up. But they will be on there and you can still listen to people you didn't get to see or rewatch keynotes. It'll, it'll be great. That is one of the great values that I I love about how you guys handled this is it's really difficult to, you know, you've got four sessions, maybe five to choose from. So you got to pick the one that speaks to you. But sometimes there's another two or three that you'd really love to go to. Like I missed, I missed Madeline Witterholtz legal right. and I always love going to hers. That's just one example. And now because it's on the Whova app, I can go back and watch all of them and then get all those credits. That's, that's great. Good right. job. To- Thank you the OKHR committee for that. And, 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 Tara, (laughs) I can't go without congratulating you on the excellence in HR from the Crow and Dunleavy award that you won. That was incredible. Congratulations, way to go. Thank you. (laughs) I think that's the best way to say it is thank you. I'm super humbled. I I don't wanna take up airtime on this, but thank you very much. Huge honor and surprise and just want to say, I love what I do. I love volunteering with my friends. I love working with my coworkers and and we're here to serve. So bottom line, it's just amazing, amazing feeling to be honored and thank you. Well, well-deserved, well-deserved. So happy for you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I think that's enough about the, the conference, right? We've got a really, really big milestone episode in front of us. We do. This is huge. This is we huge. Did. Yeah. We are on number 50 
uh, podcast that is posting. And I'm sorry that we are taking a very long intro, but we have a spectacular guest this time. It is Dr. Nathan Miller. And Dr. Miller, his he has many roles. He is the CEO of Strata. He's a founding member of C3 Brands. He's an executive coach, author, professor. And lastly, and most importantly, how we tend to know him is he is a storyteller with many story to, stories to tell. Dr. Miller knows tricks such as how to change the way we perceive situations. And I expect he will wow us with ways to improve our outlook. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Miller. How are you? Welcome. I, I'm doing well and thank you for the invite. It's an honor to be a part of this. Well, we are excited that we could capture time with you. I know that there's a few people we've talked with that uh, connected with, connected all of us. So thank you uh, to those persons. One was uh, Mr. Chris, and he uh, was just recently on our podcast, and we were able to visit with him about things that he does, such as training and outlook and things like that as well. But we're hopeful that you would at least visit with us a little bit about telling how you landed where you've landed and how you got there started with what you did in your background. And so would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your background and your backstory and how it led to your career and how you landed here with us visiting? Well, thank you for the question. You know, if I go really far back, um, I guess the, the early memories of childhood for me, uh, we were a family that always had children living in our home who were in foster care. Mm. And so from a, a very early age, my, um, my, my parents would have really more um, adult conversations with us about um, the challenges facing the kids who were coming to live with us, what that meant for us, and, and how we were uh, needed to be able to, um, to help, to, to lead. And I, I would think that that was one of the, the bigger things that uh, was, a, was a driver early on. And so um, most of those kids would live with us for a couple of years, sometimes uh, three or longer, and they became part of your family. But they also uh, had some challenges that made you understand that there was a bigger world out there and that world was different than the one that I had experienced. Mm -hmm. They, um, it, I've recently seen some books or, or items that talk about having a conversation with persons that have different backgrounds or they're at, they are hurt. And it's a change of way of asking people what happened to you instead of automatically assuming that that person is just being mean or angry. And so it sounds like you potentially learned some of those things from an early age of having um, other persons living in your home that weren't necessarily your blood relatives. And, I, and the reason I tell the story really of just explaining more about my background is that in, in my family, there was an expectation that people would serve. And it mm -hmm. was a theme that began at that point and then continued on. And so right. the idea uh, of leadership or the idea of um, uh, using your life to help other people was, was something that was embedded very early on and then uh, reinforced. So then going through school, um, you know, learning about how, uh, how to engage with people, learning all the things that you learn, it just 
continue to be reinforced that one way that I could help people was through leadership. And I have always viewed leadership as a way to serve people. And I uh, started working full-time when I was uh, 14. I was a janitor at the mall and I uh, worked 40 hours a week uh, as a, in the summer. And then during the school year, I would cut back on my hours, which I had no idea how that was going to help me later in parenting. So to start off by having a job uh, when you're 14, uh, working full-time as a janitor, um, that really takes away any arguments that your kids have of things that they, uh, you know, when they say their life is challenging, I say, well, not, not really that, that challenging because I went from being the janitor at the mall to being the yeah. janitor at the school that I attended oh. in high school. And so these were, um, these were good experiences because I, uh, I learned the value of what it, of, of a hard day's uh, work. Uh, I learned the uh, importance of being self-motivated, things like that. Then I went on to college. Um, and it was in college that I really began to look at myself a little bit differently, not because of something that I was seeing, but something that other people said they saw in me. And so that began to, to really crystallize the idea of, of being a leader. And so... Um, when I went to college, I, I joke, but it's not really a joke. But when I went to college, our family, uh, we did not have a high expectation on academics. And so when I graduated from high school, I got my diploma. You know, the, everybody's there to celebrate the moment. And my family's all around me. And the principal of the high school walks up and he says, so, Nathan, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go to college. And my principal there in front of my family said, really? He said, wow. He said, he said this. He said, do you think you're smart enough to do that? Oh. And the thing is, I was not offended by it at all. I, matter of fact, I was thinking the same thing. I, I, I don't know. And so when I went off to college, I, I just didn't know a lot about college. I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I really didn't know that there were even different degrees. I thought there was a college degree. I didn't know anything about that. And when I got there, I found that there were some really stellar educators who took an interest in my life. And they changed my perspective by expanding it. I, I wouldn't say they replaced it, but they expanded it. And so from there, I uh, continued on to uh, earn my bachelor's degree. And then I got my first master's degree was in education with uh, the focus on communication. And then there was about a 10 year gap and I went back to school and got a, an, another master's degree in dispute resolution because I found that leaders tend to be where the complexity and the problems are. And mm -hmm. I felt like that was gonna be an important piece of the puzzle. And then just to see how far in debt I could go, I went ahead and got my, my doctorate uh, in organizational leadership. And uh, my goal was to pay off my student loan debts by the time my kids got in college, and I was not successful. And so uh, I, I have been able to pay them off, uh, but it took a long time. And I'm very grateful to live in a place where we had access to loans, where I could do something like that, yeah. because um, not that long ago, that would not have been possible. Right. So I, I am anchored on the the comment slash question of others seeing something in you that you haven't necessarily seen in yourself. And I think about that. I have a high school aged kid 
Or I think about myself being younger and somebody saying, I see this in you. And it is so impactful for people, for, for an individual to hear it. Mm-hmm. But, but it's also, I think, gosh, scary, how do you flip it? And how do you help that person who hasn't seen it in themselves to create, to believe it and act on it? You know, now I work with executives most of the time and do a lot of executive coaching. And it's one of those great professions that the longer I do it, the more I look forward to being able to do it. But I would guess that uh, 80, 85% or more of people who are in key leadership positions would identify the greatest challenge they have is self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And, and so there is that question of, um, did they choose the wrong person? Am I the right person for this job? And it's a form of the imposter syndrome that we all buy into. And so when someone comes along who we see something in them that we think that this is someone that is um, helpful to you or, or someone of, of stature or someone in that type of role, an educator, a, a music director, whatever it may have been, and they take an interest in your life, I think that it would be shocking to those people even to realize how much those sentences that they said to you at an important time made a difference. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a teacher it was a, a Tuesday afternoon. I mean, I can see it in my, I can see it right now. Mm-hmm. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I was walking into class. Um, I, I would normally go about two thirds of the way back on the left-hand side of the classroom because I didn't want to be in the back row because that's where you, you kind of got targeted. And if you're in the front row, you're also in the line <laughs> of fire. So I would kind of get lost in that <laughs> two thirds of the way back on the left-hand side. And I'm on my way to that spot when the teacher in the front of the classroom, she literally put her finger out and pointed at me. And she says, she said, <laughs> she said, Nathan Meller, I know who you are. Mm. And I looked at her and she looked at me and she said, uh, come here. And so I walked up to the front of the classroom and we had these little thin tables at the front where the teacher could put their books and things. There's a little podium on one of them. And she reached over that podium and she wasn't very tall, but she reached over that podium and put her, put her finger in my face, which again, this is all, this is all new to me. That the, the idea of this happening is all new to me. She puts her finger in my face and she says, Nathan Meller, I know who you are. And she said, I think you are gifted and you do not know it. She Mm -hmm. said, um, I expect you to make an A in this class. This class is not easy. And she pointed to a a seat on the front row and she said, sit there. The words that she had used, I had never heard in my life. And I sat there thinking, what if she she knows something? Mm -hmm. And she had been teaching twice as long as I had been alive. And it was the right thing at the right time. And it is the reason why I believe that your entire life can be changed in a single conversation because mine was. Now, changing your mind doesn't mean you're changing direction yet. You you can change your mind in in an instant, but the process of learning a new way of thinking takes time. There's no fast way to get there. And so that initial change and then the next layer and then the next layer And one of the coolest things ever 
two years ago, I was asked by that university to come back and, and uh, do a all day program for all the faculty as they were preparing for the beginning of the school year. And the at the end of the day, they had a, a banquet with all the faculty, which was uh, just a surreal event. And they brought that professor back out of retirement and they put her uh, table right in front of the, the podium where I was speaking at the banquet. And it was one of the most beautiful things to me in the entire world. And you don't always get to see how your investments play out. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because you wonder how many times did she impact someone's life and they never had a moment to be able to convey that to her. But you just never know when what you're saying uh, helps someone else clarify who they want to be. Mm-hmm. So I've, I can go anywhere with this. I got a thousand questions here, but self-doubt, Nathan, 85% of executives, that's their number one fear. How do you help somebody overcome such a crippling behavior or thought? I, I love that question and, and thank you for, for asking it. And my number may be different than other people's numbers, but I think the farther you go up in an organization, the more you're going to have people feel that way. And so one of the things that I like to do is to coach for compassion versus coaching for compliance. And, and that concept is not original to me. It's from the work of Dr. Richard Boyatzis, who's at Case Western. Mm-hmm. Dr. Boyatzis uh, was one of the two that uh, really was behind the idea of emotional intelligence and then later uh, what became known as the intentional change theory. But what he found, and they're they're actually studying uh, um, people who had health issues and looking at why do some people recover, some people don't. And what they found is that, you know, for people who had, let's say, a heart attack, and they were told by the the physician later, they they said, you need to lose 30 pounds or you're going to have another heart attack. And what they found is that people, uh, over 90% of people would lose the weight. And then within a year, that same group would have put the weight back on. And they were trying to understand why. And so what they found is that that was coaching for compliance. Do it this way or something bad's going to happen. Versus coaching for compassion, which was asking a different question. And the question was, tell me about the ideal version of you as it pertains to your health. And people would say, well, I'd like to be able to um, walk around the block. I'd like to be able to do this, this, and this. And then they began the coaching by aligning it with who they really wanted to be. Now, what Dr. Boyatzis found is that when you do it that way, you have two different parts of the brain that begin to engage. If I'm uh, involved in a change because I'm concerned that it's something negative is going to happen if I don't do this, that engages the negative emotional attractor, which is great at prompting change, but it doesn't sustain change. The positive emotional attractor is what sustains change, and that's connected to tell me who you want to be. And I'm not trying to feed narcissism, but I am saying this, those executives are often playing a role that they have in their head that is often not needed and exhausting trying to be someone you're not. And so part of the the conversation is helping liberate people to talk about who they want to be and then to talk uh, through with them the game plan for them to have that life of freedom. So uh, how do you 
have that conversation with some, how does one determine who they want to be? You know, it's interesting because um, most of coaching is about the future. I, I think therapy is an incredibly important thing for a lot of people, uh, if not everybody, really. But therapy tends to be focused on the past. Mentoring is often about where you are currently. And then coaching is focused on the future. And so if I said to you, Rob, I said, Rob, let's talk about your life. If we could imagine the ideal version of you three to five years from now, what is life like? if we're having the ideal version of you live that out. And I would go into different ways of, of asking that question. But what you'll find is that um, for a lot of people, the first time you ask that question, they don't have a great answer. Right. So my kids who are college aged, uh, when they enter college as a freshman, they are asked an amazing question. Who do you wanna be? What do you wanna study? And it's a completely unfair question at that point in their lives. Some kids know, but very few really know. Later in life, like where you are right now, Rob, you now know what you want and what you don't want, but no one's asking the question. <laughs> so after uh, the first time they say, I don't really know, then we start going back and say, okay. And, and I like to ask this, then let's think about what is the ember that always burns hot for you. What is, if we're gonna build a bonfire in your life, what is the ember that throughout your life, this has always burned hot? It is passion. It is, this is something that really drives you. And what you'll find is that sometimes what people find is their purpose is not their profession. Mm -hmm. Now we can have a great conversation. And so plugging that in, I think about my grandfather who came back from World War II. He had a dream of being a mechanic or a machinist. You come back from World War II, we have plenty of both. So he got the best job he could get. He was a postal carrier for the next 30 years. Uh, that was job one. He was letter carrier. Job two, he was the janitor at the local bank. Job three, he was the janitor at the local church. I don't think that he loved any of those jobs. He did his job well because he was a person of character, but he did the job that he did because it connected in his mind. He had a job he didn't love so that he could take care of the people he did love. So it may not always be that you love the job, but that you've connected it deep, deeply to something that you really value. And so if when I go back to that, people will often tell me what they don't want before they can tell me what they do want. Mm -hmm. And those are great conversations. But think about the last time someone asked a question like that to you. And think about the last time you had a great conversation like that. And they're hard to find. Yes. Do you think that... Uh... What people want changes over time? I do think it changes, at least the, the format of it. I find that people tend to have a theme that remains similar, but the expression mm -hmm. of that theme changes. Now you think about your, your life, the, the happiest times of your life, it kind of looks like a U-shape uh, in your mid to late 20s. If you uh, look at that time of life, people who tend to be married with no children, that tends to be a very happy time of life. Uh, no commentary needed. 
and then it, it <laughs> drops down into this U shape. Mm -hmm. And when people are in their 40s and 50s, this is a challenging time regardless of what's going on. Now, if you add a pandemic and you add some other things, it's really tough. Then it begins to shift. And the second happiest time of people's lives tends to be in their late 60s. Well, wow. if I look at that U-shaped kind of thing, people would say on the front end, well, I'm happy because I have this long runway ahead of me. I've got all this I can do. I've got time. And then it begins to bottom out. And then ask the same question in their 60s, it would be, I gained insight into what really didn't matter. And so the, the vision changed of how they see the world, the goal might not have. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I, I have so many different directions to go in all of these conversations, but I want to ask the question um, from a standpoint of you have a book called Sleeping Giants and have it right here. Da, 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 <laughs> and look at me. I'm so lucky. It is even signed. Very good. And the question I have about Sleeping Giants, you talk a lot, and I love that you talk a lot, that you talk a lot about connection and uh, one story in particular, and I'm just going to say one word, and, I, and I'd love for you to share the story, but out of it is the word salt. But the bottom line is, I feel like in this is, you are talking about engagement, and engagement since the pandemic to me is such a buzzword and so important that I feel like somehow we backed away from it and then now it is forefront. Everybody needs to be talking about engagement. Everybody needs to be doing these things. And you talk about them in simple manners of culture and history and connection of those things. So I, I just gave a, a statement. It's really not even a question, but I'd love to hear your, your comment about engagement and also if you would share the SALT story. Because I love that story. Well, thank you. Uh, the salt story, I'll, say, I'll uh, say that, tell that story first, and then maybe it leads to the other part. Uh, when I was in um, college, there was an opportunity to uh, go to Russia and teach English in the summer, which for whatever reason, that really interested me. And so uh, when I was I guess I was uh, 18 or 19, I, I, I went and did that and then ended up doing that for the next four summers. And for the last three summers, the, way, the place I would go was a very unusual place. It was a place called Dubna, D-U-B-N-A, Dubna, Russia, where, and that's the home of the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research. And it's one of those amazing places where the incredible physicists and mathematicians and genetic engineers come from all over. And they are often really wanting to improve their English. And so that's what we would uh, do. We would help them with that, uh, read with them, build relationships and, and build some great friendships. We typically only worked with adults, but there was one student who came in that, um, uh, you know, the, that was um, an unusual student. I'm gonna tell two stories here, if you don't mind. Uh, this student was probably 13, or 14 years old, and he had a, a um, physical challenge where his leg wouldn't, he had to pull his leg behind him a little bit. And he was much smaller than the typical kid of his age. And this kid 
impacted my view of what you're describe what you're talking about, and I'll get to the salt question. These are, these two happen at the same time. This kid, um, we again we didn't normally work with young people, but he came in and his English was really uh, incredible, and so we had him read a couple of pages to kind of get a sense of that. And so then we, we we shut the book that he just read, and we said, "Well, tell me, tell us about what you just read. Like, give us some you know feedback of what you just read." And he quoted two pages in their entirety. And I had never really been around uh, people who had photographic memory at that mm -hmm. level in a foreign language. He had seen this one time and then quoted both pages to us without a, without a single mistake. And I thought, oh, wow, this might be interesting. So we, can, we began working with him. As we got to know him, we said, you know, what are, your, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And he said, well, his favorite thing was he had a collection of uh, butterflies that he uh, would have framed and they would have these butterflies on his walls and things like that. And, and, and so I said, well, where, where do you find those? You know, where do you get uh, butterflies like that? And he said, well, you can order them. And he said, but um, you can also find them locally. And he said, when I, um, what I, he said, what I did, I, I, I bought a, a net and, and everything. And in the forested areas outside of town, you can find these uh, butterflies. He said, but I found that I, I was too slow and I couldn't catch them. So he had the little net. The family goes out there to the, the edge of the forest. He's chasing these butterflies and cannot catch a single one. And he said, they were too fast and I was too slow. And I said, so what did you do? And he said, I stopped trying to collect, I stopped trying to collect butterflies and I started collecting caterpillars. And then I wait. Ta-da. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow. 13, 14-year-old kid. And he really instructed me on something. Some things take time. Right. And some things are worth the time. Now, that aligns with, as I was um, finishing up one of the years there, we, we made these deep friendships that um, still exist today. And at the end of one of the, at the end of the, the, one of the trips, they said, we'd like to have a friendship ceremony. And what they did is they, they had this big thing where all, everybody came to the, the main hall and they brought out this um, platter and on it was this big round uh, loaf of bread uh, called uh, caravai. And in the middle of this round uh, bread that had been baked beautifully was a uh, porcelain ramekin in the middle. And then what you do, they said, we're going to have a ceremony. We're going to have a friendship ceremony. And they said, what, what, what we're going to do is um, uh, everybody gets a piece of the bread and they dip it into the salt that's in that ramekin and then they eat the bread. And it's ceremonial. But the ceremony is this. This is the beginning of a friendship. But you are not truly friends until you have had a kilo, which is 2.2 pounds, of salt together. This is the beginning of something. And it takes time. And so these two themes of it takes time. And the, the, the last piece I would put on that is I would, I would watch my dad, who was a high school football coach. I would watch my dad and I noticed that he, he was a very good coach. They were state champions, the whole thing. And I noticed that my dad did not coach every player the same. 
And I would say this, if you do try to coach every player the same, you're going to lose a lot of games. So what he would do is he would adjust his approach based upon who he was coaching to get the best out of them. And one of the things you'll find in leadership is that you can't lead people well that you don't know well. And when you talk about engagement, it requires a level of relationship for you to understand what are they trying to get done? And then back to the service mindset, how can I help them do that? And so if, if you don't know what is motivating to the people that work with you, this is one of the, the fastest things that you can do to have a, the, one of the biggest impacts because most people have not had a three to five minute conversation with people at work in which they're saying, uh, so tell me uh, why, why you work here. Tell me, uh, tell me what motivates you. And if we don't know what motivates people, we're guessing. And we tend not to be very good at guessing. So I would say that at the heart of engagement is that there's a sensitivity that everyone's not the same. And as a leader, I have to just adjust for them, just like a good teacher, just like a, a good coach to get the best out of them. You got one uh, player who might respond with the coach yelling in their face and the whole thing. Then another player uh, would respond better if the coach brought him over the side and quietly said, you know, did you, did you see what happened there? Mm-hmm. That's the wisdom that comes into play. So when we talk about engagement, engagement is what happens when people feel motivated over a longer period of time. And I think one of the big breakthroughs is recognizing that I, as a leader, am not responsible for motivating people. I am responsible, however, for removing the things that keep them from being motivated. So if you could think of, uh, I I like to hike, and there's a a place I love to hike in the Grand Teton National Park. And as you're going up the hike, uh, up the trail, on the right-hand side, the river from the, the mountain snow comes down, and it is just incredibly beautiful, but it's that white um, rapids type of water, and it's just flowing, and it's just the sound of it, the whole thing. Well, at the angle that's coming down from that mountain, the water does not need <laughs> anything other than to be able to, to be released, so to speak, because the gravity is going to pull it down. It's, it, that's what's going to happen, unless trees fall into the river, there's a rock dam that is there or whatever. So to get the water to flow again, I have to remove the obstacles. And a friend of mine down in in Hobart, uh, America, Mm -hmm. in Hobart, Oklahoma, and uh, went to see him and he had a little house next to a pond and the pond was completely dry. Went back a few months later and the pond was completely full. And I said, so what happened? I said, did you bring water in? Like, well, how did you get this water? And he said, well, I didn't bring water in. I removed the cedar trees along the creek bed, which take up to 5,000 gallons each. And by removing the cedar trees, the water flows again. So what I would say for leaders trying to help engage people, which is a byproduct of motivation, it is really important to ask, A, what motivates them, and B, to determine What can I do to make them be able to have what they would naturally experience? People are naturally motivated and then they tend to become uh, unmotivated when things get in the way. So as a leader, I use my uh, position to be able to remove the the trees, the debris in the stream so that the water can flow again. 
when you were talking about coaching, I had a flashback and I'm going to say a little bit personal in here, but I had a, a coach whenever I was growing up and we just honored him this past weekend and people were getting up and talking to him and, uh, and telling stories and people had made these same comments of what you're talking about. How come you were so good or how come you were impacting um, these kids that were little, I say little kids, I mean, you know, from the age of five to through high school. And um, the point that he made was I got down on their level and we had so many pictures of this coach just individually with with persons and this one um, athlete who went on to to participate in college, she said, I felt like, I hear you say you're with all of these people, but I always felt like you were with me. Hmm. And that was the sweetness of what I'm hearing you say too. Of it made persons feel special. And that engagement of, I'm sure he did get things out of the way for them. So I, I, I'm regurgitating that I've seen it in other areas of, of all the things that you're talking about. I love the story and I can see that in my mind's eye of that coach on one knee. Um, connecting. And that's the idea. Uh, we, we published a book for the Door Institute. Uh, the, the, there's the um, Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University. It was founded a few years ago following a $50 million gift by John Doerr to Rice to help them explore how do you help uh, create leaders. And what they did is they went across the United States and they looked at all the universities that say we're preparing the next generation of leaders and they began scientifically to study well are you and how are you oh and it was an amazing study and one that hurt my feelings on a number of levels on things that i had thought was a good idea that evidently, evidently don't work but the the number one thing that they found in helping to develop leaders the fastest way to develop uh, new leaders is through coaching they now offer uh, executive coaching to all Rice students without cost. And 40% of the students at Rice are now receiving coaching, even though it's not for credit, it's just to help them have a better life. And I lead up to that because it's the same thing in the workplace right now. I'm getting asked to speak to a number of uh, companies right now dealing with the hybrid workplace. How, what do we do next? How do we do all this? And it still goes back to the idea of coaching because it's the same thought as you're representing and as you did a moment ago, that if I'm leading people remotely, it's all the more important that I'm helping them pursue what they need to pursue, not me having to stand over their shoulder. So the coach is working on the person, the person's working on the problems in their lives, and you have to trust that they are the most equipped to be able to determine how best to, to proceed. But that relationship, of leader as coach is something that I am so excited about because it is really taking off. And for most companies, they can do all of this with internal coaches. They, they don't have to go hire people like me. They, they can do this with internal coaches that work inside their organization. Because most organizations, the only coaches they really probably need are at the executive level when that person might not be able to share some of the plans for the future or this or that, which means in most organizations, that's a very small number. The internal coach to me is in many ways, the future of management and developing future managers and leaders. 
All right, I'm curious on on this term of saying internal coaches. So are mm -hmm. you suggesting that within a business there are persons that are placed at a hey, I might I might be a first level supervisor, but I it it has been identified that this first level supervisor has great compassion, has these skills, has these connections. And so is that what you're saying? Hey, we're going to target this person and they will have certain people they connect with? Or what are you? I'm saying that uh, coaching is different than mentoring. Mm -hmm. uh, and all these terms are, are a bit flexible right now. And you might be using the word mentoring and you mean coaching or vice versa. I'm not really trying to argue the, the, the terms, but, but the idea. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of a coach is someone who is helping you identify your goals, identify the obstacles to those goals, helping you articulate a game plan of what's the next step I can take, and then helping uh, guide you through that. How did it go? What did you learn? Things like that. That type of training is something that um, leaders and, and managers uh, can, can use to be able to help people uh, be more effective at work. So the internal coach would be someone who might be uh, literally called an internal coach, or they might be someone who's been equipped with the, the coaching capacity, mm -hmm. and they are working with the people on their team in that uh, using that approach. It is an amazing thing to watch, and it is uh, something that I think in the hybrid world is going to be all the more important. So I want to want to pull on this thread a little bit. I personally have had this experience that you're talking about. My last position, I was learning and development manager, and I found more and more and more that individuals were coming to me seeking specific training about certain items or problems or challenges that they had in their position. And I found I was creating curriculum and training plans that felt more like I was coaching them rather than uh, any kind of standardized training that, had, that was at the beginning of, of my position. And many times, Nathan, I felt like, who am I? I'm not, I'm not this certified coach, you know, to be telling this person that they need to improve their soft skills or, you know, have they considered this, you know, activity to kind of help with these things. Uh, so I think that might be a challenge for organizations overall to kind of identify the right people to be the coach and what resources those individuals have to actually be an effective coach. Absolutely. And that field has grown dramatically. And for both of you, just listening to you ask questions, both of you would be great coaches. But the idea of being a coach, which is different than, let's say, being a counselor, mm -hmm. being a coach means I am focusing on you. You are focusing on your problem. Because of that, I don't have to have an expertise in your field to be an effective coach. If I'm a mentor, I need to have gone down the same path as you. If I'm a counselor, I need to have a um, set of skills that have been developed over quite a long period of time to deal with a variety of, of challenges. A coach is someone that theoretically does not need to have the, the same types of life experiences as you. And I would argue may actually be more, be more beneficial if they haven't because they're not bringing their bias into the, the issue. So if I'm, if you and I, Rob, were in a session, I would be saying, Rob, let's talk about, um, let's talk about where you want to focus uh, your life. And it might be something that I've got a presentation next week, or it might be something much larger. But I 
come at that coaching session believing that even if I spent the rest of my life trying to understand Rob, I will not understand Rob as well as Rob does. So I'm not, um, I, I'm not going to know what you need and you might not be able to even tell me. So my goal is to focus on you and ask the questions and prompt things so that you can determine what's the best thing for you to do to move forward. It is an amazing thing to watch. It is something that is affordable and it does not necessarily require bringing people in from the outside after the initial training for some of these things. And there are a host of places that train uh, on this topic and do a very good job. But Rob, I think that what you were feeling uh, in those experiences is what uh, we're beginning to see is that uh, people respond well, evidently, to someone who cares about them, <laughs> helps them clarify their goals and supports them in reaching those goals and helps keep them accountable for it. I just pulled up a note from a prior prior supervisor who, who helped me to write this probably in hmm, 2015 on this little piece of paper that basically asked, what problem are you trying to solve and what are your objectives? So Perfect. right in that, right in that vein. And it is stuck under my monitor. <laughs> well, at Strata Leadership, we joke about this, and this idea is not original to me, but there's what's called the lamppost effect. And the lamppost effect is basically, and, and we hate this, but we think it's actually true. If you would go talk to a lamppost every other week about oh. your future <laughs> for 45 yes. minutes, it would be helpful. And yes. so for many people, it's just the time to think. And if there had been little time before COVID, it is all the more important now. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you're hitting on all of these trainings and, and comments. And I have uh, had a training where it wasn't part of the training, but the, but the facilitator brought up the comment of use, only use why 1% of the time. And basically use what, how, where, when 90% of the time so that you're asking, you're turning questions around like a lamppost of saying, well, what is your objective? Mm -hmm. Period. The end. And then people have to think about it. So then they can create their, find out what they need to do themselves. We're not solving the problem. We're helping them to, to look at it differently. Perfect. And, and this is, um, I love working with leaders. Being around leaders is like oxygen for me, mm -hmm. but they care so deeply that they tend to overcommit. They've got too much going on and then they have no time to stop and think. So mm -hmm. things like this help raise self-awareness, which is the requirement for other awareness. So part of this idea is that if I can help you understand who you are, then you're more likely to be able to understand where other people are coming from as well. And those are those great conversations that need to be intentional so that you can go down that list. What, what am I trying to accomplish here? Mm -hmm. um, why is the, one of my favorite questions, why is this important to you? And this is why I love what I get to do. Because if you love people, you're going to be interested in their stories. And when you ask somebody, why was it important to you to finish that degree? Why was it important to you to finish that certification? Why did you stay up late at night or get up early in the morning to be able to get that? Those answers, I, I just don't, I just never get tired of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the having the connection with people of, of hearing their deep, deeper parts of their stories. And so mm -hmm. I think that's why it ended up that Rob and I 
started this podcast is basically to tell that everybody who are in whatever role they're in, they didn't get to it the same way. No. And, and that's to me, when you think about HR, this is a, a world that has often been misunderstood or discounted, um, that has been viewed as, I guess we need that. And that has forever shifted. And I view what happened through COVID as literally 10 or 20 years of progress for HR that happened within a matter of six months or a year. And all of the sudden, if there had ever been a question, what is the value of HR? All of the sudden, that became incredibly apparent. Mm -hmm. And when you think what people in HR have done over the last couple of years, it is, it is absolutely shocking. My concern right now, however, is that after they've gone through that and they've had to pivot and pivot and pivot again, I believe that the most vulnerable time for people in HR is actually right now and into the next six to nine months. As they're coming back online, things are becoming more normal and they never had any downtime to be able to process what they went through and to think about where they wanna go next. And to be clear, when someone is asking you to think about the future, when someone's asking you to think about the future and you feel overwhelmed, it is not only a question they can't answer, it tends to be a question that they view as really irritating. And so as people come back online and they begin to start looking to the future again, people are exhausted. So to, to, to connect back, like we talked about earlier with Rob, of what is, the, um, what is that uh, ember that is burning hot so that we can reattach it to what they're doing. You, you can't have grit until you connect what you're doing with what you believe. And that's the thing that I see being so helpful and needed, uh, even with your conference coming up next week, it is an excuse to ask those questions again to help people get realigned. So I started laughing because in the middle of this, because the most recent HR magazine Part of the headliner says HR under pressure, year three of the pandemic, an ever expanding list of duties, worker shortage, and even in their own ranks. And basically pointing out that people are burnt out. And, and it's mm -hmm. it's scary. And I and I love how we didn't even prompt you on this question. You brought it up because the question I was going to ask is what value do you see HR is showing in this current climate of business? And you answered it and then more. Well, it's an incredible opportunity, but it's also, you know, you're, you're completely exhausted. Hey, out there in front of you, you can go pick up whatever you want, but you're already exhausted. And so to, to stop for a minute, because you think about what HR has led people through over the last uh, two to three years, it was this amazing health crisis. It was remote work. It was uh, all these things. Then when we look at the social issues driving uh, all these different pieces, if you just took one of those, that would have been one of the most incredibly challenging times mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And when you add all of them, and all of them have amazing opportunity. So what I ask people to do is to focus on the post-traumatic growth. So when you look at trauma, about um, two-thirds of people, a little less than two-thirds of people, when they go through a traumatizing event, when they've gone through that and they look back on that time, they would say, if I could have avoided it, I would have avoided it. But because I couldn't, I had to go through it, and it made me stronger because I did. 
but they have to focus on the post-traumatic growth. In what ways did you grow? When the um, pandemic hit and the financial crisis came right behind it, our company uh, had just gone through the the end of the end of the year, beginning of the year, which is when people typically aren't hiring us for our services. So we kind of build up and then have to glide through, then build up, then glide through. When it hit, it was uh, one of those times where we just there was there was nothing that we could do. We could only pivot so many times. And through that experience, we lost about forty percent of our team, mm-hmm. none of whom had been a part of the company for less than a decade. It changed me. Yeah. And as much as I thought I understood what it meant to be on a team, and I would have said I viewed myself as an advocate for team, the truth was I had no idea. And if we didn't have every person doing what they did throughout that time, I don't know how we would have made it. And what I love about our team is that the team said, if we're going through this, other people are going through this too. What could we do to uh, serve them? And I say that because I don't know how I would have learned that my uh, eyesight needed to be corrected if I hadn't gone through something that uh, allowed me to see differently. Mm-hmm. And I have, um, I have been changed. And I think it's important now as people are coming through this and then moving on, because they're not going to want to talk about this for the rest of their lives. This is a good time to say, we've all been through something that's been pretty challenging. Let's talk about areas in which you've grown. How has this um, changed you? Mm-hmm. And to have those conversations, because a lot of people are not working where they were working three years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a challenging time. So for us to be patient with one another, and then to be asking those questions again about the future. And it may not be three to five years, but if I said, let's talk about the next six months, where do you want to be a year from now? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm just, I got stuck on the, the comment of what changed you and how are you, how are you growing or how are you learning or doing differently? And that's big. I mean, I, I want to turn yeah. it around and say, hey, Rob, hey, Nathan, what about you? I'm not going to answer it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, but I, I mean, I, I look at it from our standpoint of we, from my work or growth and, and even personal, I mean, all those things rolled together because even if somebody still continued to work at their office and maybe there were changes for people leaving, maybe those person's spouses aren't currently working. So then all of these things have, you know, totally shifted and every people's outlook looks totally different or different. So to so to redeem that pain Mm -hmm. means that I get something from it. And when you look back over the course of your life, the, the things that were often the most challenging were part of the time in which you were also growing the most. Yeah, I, I, I can't dismiss the pain. I, I can't even take away the pain, but I can at least redeem it by going back and saying, how, uh, what did I learn uh, about myself and how, how can I grow from it? Okay.
Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just going to say being tough, honestly, mm-hmm. because, and I don't want to use the word grit. I don't want to use the word resilience, but I want to say tenacity of powering through that there is still things to do and still things to look forward to and still things that what I, all of these things there with things that are good, there are also things that are bad. And so mm-hmm. looking at things that were potentially bad or that were bad, there was also in my world, a reset. And I love that part to be able to slow down and see some things that I hadn't seen in a while. That's very generic, big picture. <laughs> uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, I like to hike and um, I'm not even a good hiker. I just like to do it. And so, um, I was in my 30s before I had ever been to a national park, really. Mm-hmm. And so that has become part of our, our lives. And a few years ago, we got a cabin up in the Rocky Mountain National Park, right outside of it. And the where we were was on the back side of it, where the elevation is like 9,500 feet. And when you come from Oklahoma, that's a, that's a, pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty big uh, change. And we got to the house and we got everything out and I'm carrying the suitcases upstairs to uh, the different uh, spots and I've taken this up to the, the bedroom up there. And I found myself uh, just being out of breath and just not, I had a headache, the whole thing. And so I thought this is, I think this is altitude um, sickness. And, and it's one of those things you could go to the same place 10 times and not have it eight times. But I, I, I was dealing with it. So I went online and I said, well, what do you do when you have altitude sickness? And, and the first thing was so funny to me. And it said, uh, the first thing to do to alleviate symptoms of altitude sickness is to go to a lower altitude, which I thought was really obvious of, well, stop being where you are, just go farther down. And, but it was right. Mm-hmm. And when you look at burnout and breakdown, Burnout and breakdown is not the result of you not being a good person. Matter of fact, it's typically the result of you being a good, the fact that you are a good person makes you more likely to do this. So the burnout and the breakdown, before that, there's another stop and that's panic, anxiety, and anger. And before that is exhaustion. And before that is that uh, feeling of just being tired. And if we look at where you are in peak performance, it has a bell curve shape. And if I'm at peak performance and I keep being overstressed, I go into that level of um, uh, I'm tired. I could get a weekend off and I could bounce back. If I don't do that, I go into fatigue. Mm -hmm. And the fatigue is something deeper. And then you find yourself in the anxiety, that, that feeling of anger, the panic. And for me, for the first time that I can recall, really, I was having... Uh, the, the thing we'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning with that feeling on your chest, that panicking, uh, that panic, that anxiety kind of attack at three o'clock in the morning, for whatever reason it was for me. And, and I thought, what is this? And if you've never had one, it will get all of your attention. And, I, and I, it happened, then it happened again. Then it happened again. And I started noticing the stress level. It's just like being on that mountaintop you've got to reduce the stress level. There's nothing else you can do to change the situation. So if I keep pushing past the panic, anxiety, and anger, that's where the burnout and the breakdown occurs. And I wanna be clear here, it is not optional. You will break. And the only way to get back is to reduce the stress. This is the product of being overstressed. Mm -hmm. So if I look at that, what you found with the reset, 
-hmm. was to recalibrate in a way that allowed you to be at peak performance. If I'm at peak performance, I could do in eight hours what a fatigued version of me could do in 12. Mm -hmm. And so it's the obligation. I'm not being, I am not being less efficient or effective by being well rested. I'm getting a lot more work done in less hours. So if I'm looking at productivity, that productivity is connected to me choosing a path that allows me to be at peak performance more often than not. Yeah. I I hear what you're saying that I um I haven't run one in a long time, but I've run marathons and one of the comments that we always took away from that is listen to your body. Because when you don't, guess what? It's injury. It's all those things that you're saying. It's burnout. It's all the things. So you and there are many times that we try to say, oh, if I just power through, I'll be fine. Oh, if I just power through, this will be okay. And, and listen to mm-hmm. your body. Period. And I would and I would have you use that same discipline that allowed you to power through to, to do hard things. Use that same discipline to say, my team needs me to be in game shape. Mm-hmm. I promise you, no one on your team is offended by you taking the time to be healthy mentally, emotionally, spiritually. They are scared when you're not. <laughs> this is what they need from you. And, and it is something that is a gift back. But that same discipline that allows you to be tough, that same discipline is used to model what it means to be at peak performance. Mm -hmm. I really don't want this conversation to end, but we've already been talking for an hour and I want to be respectful of your time. So we always end our conversations with a few end questions that are off the cuff. We didn't well, we really didn't go over any of the questions that we sent to you in the first place. So <laughs> we'll just let this be off the cuff anyway. So are you willing to answer some of these questions for us? I'm ready to go. I'm a little okay. bit nervous, but here we go. Okay. And, and, and actually, this is all in, in the same line of what we've talked about. But in right. the past year, what has been a revelation um, to you about yourself? I would say that um, one of the revelations that is is still a, a key thing that I keep finding again and again and again is that I do not think it's possible to um, overvalue team, that who you do life with matters, and life is too short to, to do life with people that you um, feel are are not helping you um, get where you want to go. Um, that, that doesn't mean we all see it the same, but it does mean that we all... Uh, care about each other and want to see each other thrive. Yeah. I love that. So uh, what mantra do you use for yourself and that you like to share with others? Mantra, <laughs> motto, whichever way. Well, it's a funny one. Um, and I actually write it down quite a bit and it's on a poster that's in my garage. So I, I see it when I get in my car and get out of the car. And then sometimes I just write it down and it's a Churchill quote and it's two words. It says, deserve victory. And the idea is you might not win, but do what you need to do to deserve it if you did. And I think about that often. I've had times in life where I, I, I had done what it took to deserve victory, and they didn't choose you. They, they went a different direction. The market shifted, the whatever it was. But you do what you do to deserve victory. And my dad, the coach, always has these quotes that he makes up because they're all, all, all coaches are part psychologists, I think. Mm-hmm. But he would say, you know, son, you don't have to make excuses for winning. 
you know, the, the, the winning coach doesn't say, um, well, I don't know how we won that game. It seems like the refs were on our side. You know, that, that's not how it goes. And, and, I, and I don't mean that to be brutal when it doesn't work, but I, I'm saying when you, just, when, when you put the work in, you tend to be more successful. And when you um, clarify what a win is and you win, you, you tend not to, make, not to have to make as many excuses. Yeah, truth. So hopping from Brene Brown's podcast, what do most people get wrong about you? I think there are a handful of things. One is that I think people, uh, I find that when I joke with people, they don't know that I'm joking. <laughs> so I, um, I, I think that sometimes people would be surprised by um, that I love to laugh and, and love, um, um, I, I love a good joke and a good story and, and things like that. And I think sometimes people think I'm going to be a lot more serious than I am. Well, laughter makes us live longer, right? That's so, what I yeah. hear. Okay, what, and maybe this isn't in your wheelhouse, but can you tell us a TV show that we should all be watching? <laughs> you know, um, that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, one, all of a sudden, I'm trying to think of the name with uh, uh, Coach Lasso. Ted Lasso. One, Ted Lasso, that was, um, that's one that I thought, I mean, it has some language and stuff in it, but it was... Um, a very interesting way to be able to convey deep thoughts um, and brilliantly written. Mm -hmm. um, that's one. And then my nerd answer would be, I think the, the old show West Wing is actually a great um, series for people who are trying to learn how to lead at the executive level. It, it, it is well written. And I don't think anybody's ever taken me up on it, but I do think it's one of those things that it's a, um, it, it is an insight into the pressure of leadership. Yeah, I um, watched another show from him, from Aaron Sorkin, and it was uh, Newsroom, I think is what it was called. Yes. Right. But so good, so well written. And I haven't, I would see episodes of West Wing, but I think I will go back and watch that because I did like the other so much. Your uh, story earlier, Nathan, about the, the teacher talking to you uh, reminded me of the movie Coda, if you haven't seen mm -hmm. that. I have a, a great, brilliant story about that. So it's apropos time to bring it up. When this is, it's good. It's I great. Recommend. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's why it resonates with us because we want to, we want to see people get all they can get out of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Last, last big question. Then I have one more after that, but what book or podcast that would you, you would recommend to other um, people to either listen to or read besides this one? You cut me off. I was going to do Sleeping Giants uh, right there, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll change. We'll just do it like this. Ta-da! I'll change course here. You know, <laughs> I, I love to read. And growing up, um, I had, I'm had i nearly blind in one eye, and they didn't know that. And so when I was in grade school, uh, because I couldn't read and I couldn't trace, they put me in the slow kids class, and I, um, I just couldn't keep up. And so then they figured out what the diagnosis was. I got um, therapy for about a year, which strengthened my eye enough to be able to read. And from then on, I have been a reader and I just love reading and it's been a part of my life. And so um, it's a difficult thing to choose uh, one book, but I, I will say that um, I, um, I, I think um, reading biographies is a helpful path for leaders. 
And so when you're reading about other people's lives, then you're getting insights into how other people uh, have, uh, have uh, inherited challenges and then found ways to move forward in, in life with different things. And so I would say more of a genre uh, of biographies, uh, read, read biographies of people that you find interesting. When you talk about people's character, their character tends to be shaped by who they do life with and then who they view as heroic. And so if you tell me who your heroes are, those people tend to shape who you become. And so reading biographies of people that you think are interesting. Is there, is there a biography of uninterested uh, that you've read that surprised you? You know, I mean, I think it, I think like the Benjamin Franklin's and the George Washington. So is there, yeah. is there an interesting biography that you're like, man? Well, to tell you the truth, Benjamin Franklin's biography uh, surprised me quite a bit. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I thought of his time as quaint. And it definitely was not, and he was not. And so um, that that was one. The ones that I that I have found uh, interesting um, on along those lines would be uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, this was someone who I think was a good example of. He was literally fifteen different things. He was the uh, writer, and he was the the polit political speaker, and he was the uh, the political leader. He was the academic, he was the, the general or the colonel, he was all these different things. It wasn't that he was playing the parts of those things. He was each of those things. And I think those um, types of stories uh, help people not to limit themselves. It's not, I am this or this. I am this and this. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, and yes. this has been just enlightening. I mean, the only thing I'm going to anchor on is that you said Rob and I would both be great coaches. So I'm going to take it. <laughs> <You> would be. <laughs> and, but the last thing is, how can people connect with you if they would like to connect with you or your group? Our website is a good place, uh, strataleadership.com. And then we also have a podcast and it's the Strata Leadership Show. Uh, those would be places to be able to connect. We're on the social media outlets as uh, the, the ones that you'd probably anticipate. But okay. um, I, I love what I get to do. I'm grateful to have the chance to do it. And anybody who's out there trying to make life better for other people, which to me is the heart of HR anyway, mm -hmm. these are people that you want to do life with. These are the people you want to be around. And uh, if, if you are around those people, you're going to be around challenging things and challenging situations and complexity because that's where the leaders, like I said earlier, they're always going to be where the problems are. And so if you um, are willing to, to get your hands uh, dirty and, and you're willing to serve, uh, leadership is a, an important opportunity uh, where you can help people have better lives. Okay. We will end with that because profound, period, the end. Profound. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank, Thank you so you. much for spending your time with us. We appreciate it. All right. <laughs>